Today we're continuing on our journey through the suttas. And the sutta that we'll be covering today will be in many ways a continuation of the one we did last a uh, couple of weeks ago and the week prior meaning the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana. So this would be the Anattalakkana Sutta, the discourse on the nature of non-substantiality, typically or usually translated as the teachings on non-self. Many people have come to Buddhism because of this. It's intriguing for many, the non-self, the no-self. And that is not necessarily a correct translation of no self. So, but before we dig into the various aspects of it, I just want to give uh, some of the um, uh, logistical data on it. So it is uh, from, it comes from the connected uh, discourses or linked discourses. And this happens to be sutta number 22.89. And it is from the Kanda Sangyutta or the collection on the aggregates. From the Upayavagga or the group on engagement. Again, the sutta itself is called Anattalakkana Sutta in Pali. Discourse on the nature of non-substantiality. That's how I like to translate it instead of using the typical, usual uh, definition. Uh, this fits better to my understanding, uh, non-substantial, the lack of an essence, a living soul within, if you will, in beings. So if you recall from uh, the last uh, sutta that we were covering together. Uh, initially, we find uh, four suttas. Uh, typically, they are recognized as three, the original foundational suttas, if you will, of the sasana, of Lord Buddha's dispensation. The first one being Dhamma Chakkapavattana, which is the discourse on setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. Uh, the second one is this, uh, often used as the discourse that was given um, right after um, the, it's not, it's not necessarily right after, it took about uh, five days, in fact, there's a five days gap between the first one and this Anattalakkana Sutta. And then we have... Um, the Aditya Pariyaya Sutta, commonly used as the fire sermon um, that Lord Buddha gave to thousand bhikkhus. Um, and, but there's one sutta that's often neglected to be uh, included uh, in these primary. In fact, it comes right between the um, the Dhamma Chakkapavattana and the Anattalakkana, and that is the Hemavata Sutta. And that is a sutta that was not given to human beings, uh, which we will also cover. 
Um, so these are recognized to be not only the earliest suttas, but also historically very much related in both their timeline and importance to each other because they complement each other beautifully and gives us a lovely backdrop, an understanding of also what was taking place instead of just picking out these events that took place in the Buddha's life, in the lives of the students. So it's good sometimes to have a temporal, uh, um, a timeline, if you will, yeah, a timeline of things and how things unfolded. So this is a very important sutta, um, and we will discover as to why. But uh, before we jump in, just to because it builds on the previous sutta we talked about, the setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana. So just to recap what that sutta was, uh, the primary major points, we saw how Lord Buddha was teaching us to avoid the two extremes of sensual indulgence and also uh, extreme asceticism or self rather self-mortification uh, as he uh, delineated the middle path, which is the second key uh, point of the Dhammachakka Pavattana, the middle path, which he also alternated with uh, the same definition in a sense as the um, Noble Eightfold Path, which takes us to point three, uh, and that is uh, the sharing the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. That's the third key part of the sutta that we covered. And uh, to bring more of a humanity or more of a relatedness rather in the sutta itself, the connection um, that we see in Venerable Kondanya's uh, awakening, which is point number four. And that is where um, he had the uh, eye of Dhamma arise in him. And um, sometimes people get confused between the eye of Dhamma and the divine eye. These are two completely different things. They're not the same. And uh, one, of course, the Dhamma eye uh, is uh, something that happens to an individual who has become a Sotapanna, has entered the path of Sotapatti meaning became a uh, stream enterer or stream winner, um, which, which changes their, it's, it's an unprecedented level of understanding of, of, of a lack of doubt towards the teaching, towards the teacher, and towards the possibility of awakening for oneself. Uh, whereas the, uh, the divine eye, um, is is uh, the ability to break, basically break the um, our um, understanding of physics, normal physics, because it goes beyond the confines of time and space, uh, gives the person who has that, it's a psychic ability, uh, usually venerable Anuruddha comes to mind from um, uh, Buddhist history, uh, he was notable even recognized by Lord Buddha as having the divine eye. 
So um, a person does not need to have the divine eye in order for them to experience the Dhamma eye, <laughs> if that were uh, a question that might come up. So uh, the Dhamma eye has everything to do with a level of understanding that changes the person's uh, position in life, understanding, especially in connection to the triple gem. And the level of sila rises to unprecedented levels uh, within the individual. Uh, virtue becomes a huge thing. So basically, coming back to Venerable Kondanya, we saw how he was the first to attain the stage of Sotapanna. And he immediately after requested Lord Buddha to uh, obtain the Upasampada, the higher ordination. Uh, of becoming a full-on bhikkhu. Uh, we have two ordinations, uh, uh, roughly speaking, um, and Pabbaja and Upasampada, and one is a novice um, uh, training, um, and the other one is uh, the um, ordination of a bhikkhu. Um, and so he becomes ordained as a bhikkhu, and um, next in line, we have Vappa and Bhaddiya, the other two of the four left who were not yet attained the state of Sotapatti. And uh, each one of these individuals, all, all four, they get to experience what Venerable Kondanya did experience each of those days, so consecutively. So Venerable Vappa becomes a Sotapanna the following day after Venerable Kundanya. Next is Venerable uh, Bhaddiya. And the following day, we have Venerable uh, Mahanama. And then the fourth day, we have Venerable Asaji. Uh, and each of them, after they <laughs> um, attain the stage of stream winning, they immediately ask for ordination. And in those days, Lord Buddha didn't go through the elaborate uh, initiation process. Uh, he would just say, uh, <laughs> come bhikkhus. And that was the ordination. That was it. Plus, these were individuals who had spent years training and disciplining themselves. And um, so there was no doubt in Lord Buddha's mind as to their ability and desire to uh, pursue and, and persevere on the path. Um, an interesting back story to this would also um, necessitate us, us uh, dwelling on a little bit on, on uh, the fact that while there were students being instructed, guided by Lord Buddha, uh, they were kept close by. Neither Lord Buddha nor those students in question who were still, who hadn't yet attained the level of Sotapati, uh, did go to uh, Pindapapa. So they didn't go for alms round. Lord Buddha really kept them close, so he constantly was working with them day and night, day and night, day and night. Uh, while the other, uh, starting with Venerable Kondanya, then uh, Vappa and Bhaddiya, they were the ones who were going 
and getting food for the rest of the bhikkhus, including Lord Buddhas. So I found that to be very uh, beautiful, the camaraderie, the, the support and the love for each other. And of course, the love and compassion of Lord Buddha towards the students to just making sure that they're given all the right conditions to support awakening to happen. Now, as far as the awakening, uh, sometimes people say, well, I, I just have to listen to the suttas or read the suttas and I'll get it. Look, 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 look at the five uh, group of five bhikkhus. They were able to become sotapannas. Not exactly. It wasn't just purely listening and that's it. These were practitioners. They knew the meaning of adhitana, which is determination or heedfulness. Some of us can't sit for 10 minutes without drooping, without sleeping, without dozing off. Well, adhitana has to be there throughout our journey, including, by the way, while we listen to a sutta or uh, an exploration of a sutta like this one. So the meditation practice has to be there in one form or another to allow samadhi to take place. So I need you to, to uh, also uh, look at it in that fashion because I've come across uh, individuals in my journeys uh, through the Dhamma um, and continents where they said, well, we don't have to try we're already there i'm already there you know that's what this teacher teaches and this and some of these individuals who've mentioned these things uh, that are completely based on wrong view were even in robes so we have to be very very careful uh, there is a balance remember the dhamma chakrapavattana was all about the middle path because on the other extreme you have individuals who talk about the abhidhamma you have to understand the abhidhamma fully you have to know the Visuddhi Magga fully. That is the core. So, and they make it so incredibly difficult to even fathom as to the work that needs to be done by the individual. That's another extreme. Lord Buddha said, Sila Samadhi Panya. Very simple structure for us to be reminded of. So, um, I just wanted to give that as the background um, as we begin. So this is happening uh, five days and all the five, now the, all the five students are bhikkhus ordained and they all have seen the Dhamma. They have the Dhamma eye. This is the fifth day following the Dhamma Chakkapavattana discourse. This is what I personally heard. Once, the Blessed One was living at Varanasi's deer park in Isipatana. It was then that the Blessed One addressed the group of five bhikkhus in this manner and said the following. Bhikkhus, yes, Bhante, they all replied. And the Blessed One continued. Bhikkhus, form in its essence is non-substantial. Because if form were to have a substantiality to it, then it would not disintegrate or fall apart. Where one could even be driven to say, may my form be this way or that. 
substantial and unchanging. Quickly, we see how Lord Buddha is jumping in to dismantle the person through uh, looking at the five khandhas. So we start with the form. He's not wasting any time, form, and basically the aggregates, and specifically starting with the most obvious, the visible, the shape of the being. Um, and in doing so, he will unravel uh, by demonstrating the three signatas or the three characteristics of existence, uh, namely anicca, which is the impermanence, uh, dukkha, which is the suffering or dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness, the sense of always lacking, and anatta, which is the non-substantiality. But because, because form in its essence is non-substantial, it does disintegrate and fall apart. Where one could not be able to say, may my form be this way or that, substantial or unchanging. We can especially see the relevancy of this uh, when we do, for example, the 32 parts of the body contemplation. When we look at, uh, for example, kesa, loma, nakha, danta, tacho, head hairs, body hairs, uh, nails, uh, teeth, and skin or body. Obviously there's the others as well, but this, these are the, uh, I've gone over these before, but these are the best, most related or relatable rather uh, things about ourselves that we can see that they are anicca, impermanent, they are suffering, and they are non-substantial. For example, when you're combing your hair, if you have any, you're doing all the work, going to the hairdresser, this and that, oh, I need it to be this shape, this style, I need to put some gel, this and that. So there's a there's an effort to gain some pleasure out of it. Or the nails, working on the nails, etc. But what happens when the hairdresser, the stylist, or the barber goes ahead and does snip, snip, and a portion of the hair falls off into the ground? And we look at the floor where that hair used to be well, it used to be up here, now it's down there. What we are immediately full of at that time, at that moment in witnessing the hair, strands of hair cut, immediately as something separate from us. In fact, we are filled with disgust. The same hair that earlier was on our head, or if a strand of hair just falls into the meal that we're having. Ooh, that's a fun one, isn't it? All of a sudden you're like, ugh, I, I just, ooh. What happened? Well, we saw all three characteristics in one shot. If there is the awareness and the understanding to observe these things, these phenomena, 
which often go unnoticed. Hence, we need to practice sati and sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehending, clearly comprehending what is my involvement here. The hair was on my head, now it's on the floor. So it's a matter of distance? Is that it? Or is it more than that? My contribution, my identification with this thing now, which I call not part of me. In fact, the hair, you could do whatever to it or the same with the nail that has come away from your finger. You cut it, you don't go screaming because it's, it doesn't have any living cells in it but we still find it to be part of us, ourselves, me. This is me. You and I are the same thing. That is delusion. And that is what Lord Buddha is trying to dismantle. He is trying to have the student tear this sense of identification between the aggregates. So the identification, the glue, the gorilla glue comes off and you see things as they are. Now, conventionally, of course, the person is there. That's why I don't 100% agree with people who say non-self because obviously we, we use like myself, this and that. Conventionally, we know that. But to go ahead and just wholesale, just say there is no self, that can create more confusion than wisdom in people. So, of course, this, uh, the same mechanism applies to all 32 parts of, of, of the body. Um, so, like a perfect example is a person who's had uh, amputation of some sort or um, a major injury where they've lost an eye, for example, or a finger, or doctors had to remove a portion of their body. Well, how do they look at that body part over there on the table? Separate from them. There's no way to connect the two anymore. Where is the sense of I at that moment? And do I stop living or do I start living in two places at the same time? With my nail or my arm that's over there that is totally useless now because of cancer, for example. And this body? So we see how our, when we probe into it, it falls apart. Continuing, bhikkhus, feeling. So this is the second of the aggregates. Feeling in its essence is non-substantial because if feeling were to have a substantiality to it, then it would not disintegrate or fall apart. Where one could e even be driven to say, may my feeling be this way or that, substantial and unchanging. But because, because feeling in its essence is not substantial, it does disintegrate and fall apart. Where one could not be able to say, may my feeling be this way or that, substantial or unchanging. We want to have a certain type of feeling but during the day, we go through countless states of feelings. Even when we're very happy, let's say, or in a very pleasant mood, something happens out of the blue and all of a sudden we find ourselves in the dark emotionally. 
we are upset because we saw the neighbor do something. What happened? Where did that feeling go? Even though I wanted to grab onto it, put it in a, a you know, barrel of concrete and just don't move, stay there. That doesn't work. So long as we have these six sense doors, they're always flowing in with data. And so long as there is no sati to keep guard at these doors to practice some restraint, at least, we're always susceptible to feelings. And there are feelings that will come up because of sankharas. They will come up. Now, just like form that goes through its own motions, feelings go through their own motions. Again, am I my feelings would be another way of looking at this. Uh, so in order for something to have a self, therefore, it needs to be unchanging. Just, just when we ponder this uh, logically, um, because it needs to be uh, fixed. It needs to definitely come under our control. And there is no such thing. And yeah, it needs to be, it needs to be self-sustaining and it needs to be self-sustained. Self-determined is another way of looking at it. And under all circumstances and conditions. But uh, we see that our feelings, just like our forms are in fact, not um, self-contained. They're always subject to some series of causes and conditions that put them into back again into the characteristics of existence, specifically with anicca. And anything that is anicca, anything that is impermanent, sooner or later brings us the sense of lack or dukkha. And we have countless examples in the suttas where individuals come to Lord Buddha. Um, kind of wanting to debate with him on this. Uh, how could you say there is no soul? Uh, because we say anatta, but it comes from uh, the Sanskrit word for it, atman. Atman or atta is the same thing. So all the philosophical schools in one way or another, including Jainism, uh, they have this conviction and not just in India, but all around the world, um, all ways of thinking. When we look carefully, deeply, we see that there is this either subtle, subtle or gross acceptance of a soul or a jiva in case of uh, Jainism. Um, and this is what usually can, is considered like the hub, the vortex, the, the center of one's belief system, one's understanding of life even. So you had a lot of people who came to Lord Buddha trying to negate, uh, trying to debate with him, uh, to prove him wrong. And Lord Buddha has used meticulously so many metaphors and analogies and similes to demonstrate this. And uh, one that really comes to mind uh, very quickly is um, when um, many philosophers came to debate with him. And in one particular case, he uses the example of the king, the ruler of a kingdom. 
um, as in the case was with uh, King Bimbisara, um, uh, and he would say, or King Pasenadi, does the king have sovereign rule over his kingdom? And the person says, of course. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Yes. But then Lord Buddha starts picking on it carefully. Well, yeah, of course, he doesn't have 100% control. That's the usual response. Does he have control over his body? No. Does he have control over this? Does he have control over that? Da -da 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 -da. And the thing falls apart again and again and again. And the person understands this. So that's pretty much in a very quick nutshell, you know, that's what we can look at it as. And then Lord Buddha goes to the third aspect of the aggregates, which is sanyas. Uh, bhikkhus, mentalist, I like to translate it as mental association rather than just mere perceptions. Uh, bhikkhus, mental associations or sanyas in their essence are non-substantial. Because if mental associations were to have a substantiality to them, then they would not disintegrate or fall apart. Where one could even be driven to say, may my mental associations be this way or that, substantial and unchanging. But because, because mental associations in their essence are non-substantial, they do disintegrate and fall apart where one could not be able to say, may my mental associations be this way or that, substantial or unchanging. We can't change the nature of the world, but we can develop the capacity to become resilient um, despite the obstacles around us. And the reason why I say this is oftentimes we hold such a strong position vis-a-vis uh, -vis our own notions or mental associations, perceptions as to how the world is supposed to be, and those of others. So um, in this, uh, uh, what usually takes place is, is uh, are the defilements doing their thing. Defilements doing their thing, where we want to have someone else changed their position, which pretty much explains the state of the world, right? Everybody wants to change somebody else's position to fit their own, especially when we look at the whole world as, 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 a, as a unit. And because our own notions are in a state of flux, all of you today, all of us today sitting here, we used to have different associations of, of mentality, notions, concepts, beliefs, and they're always changing. And I mention this because many of us get, can get caught up in trying to fix someone else, remove their defilements. And that is not healthy to say the least because however bad their defilements might be those defilements are not going to be taking us to hell it's our defilements that will do the job as ajan mahabua would say so focusing bringing the attention back to us 
to our own mental association, to our own perceptions is key because oftentimes I notice we are too tightly bound by our concepts and perceptions. And here Lord Buddha is trying to separate the person from this also third uh, kanda because after all, we are the authors of uh, our defilements. So the same goes with the sankharas in this case. So bhikkhus, mental habits or sankharas, uh, I don't use the word formations uh, or fabrications. I like to use either mental conjurings or mental habits uh, for sankharas. So bhikkhus, mental habits or sankharas in their essence are non-substantial because if mental habits were to have a substantiality to them, then they would not disintegrate or fall apart. Where one could uh, even be driven to say, may my mental habits be this way or that, substantial and unchanging. But bhikkhus, because mental habits in their essence are non-substantial, they do disintegrate and fall apart. Where one could not be able to say, may my mental habits be this way or that, substantial or unchanging. I've seen on retreats where people want to attack their sankharas. Good luck. It's impossible. It's impossible to, uh, to attack them. Nowhere in the suttas, Lord Buddha is saying, go ahead and attack the sankharas. Well, which one? It's vast. It's much vaster than the limitless amounts of lifetimes that we have lived in throughout samsara. It's quite an ego trip, in fact, to even think that we could manage to do this. But we can understand them. We can understand the mechanism behind it. And here, we are using the, the technique that Lord Buddha is giving by first looking at these three characteristics. In each of these khandas, can really grant us a unique point of view to see things differently where we can have some a role to play in the dismantling process. You know, it's, it's very much like standing in, in the middle of a cave or on the edge of a, a wide valley deep valley and we let go of a cry we yell we sing we make a sound that's loud enough and suddenly we're going to hear the reverberations coming back to us oh there's somebody over there in the deep end of the cave or on the other side of the valley but it's no more than an echo even a child knows this. So there's no person calling back to us from the end of the cave. But we like to think that there are or there is somebody in the valley calling back to us. So those are just the mere reverberations of our ideas, perceptions, notions, Presumptions, papanchas, papanchas, which we keep sending off, just like the voice that we let loose throughout the cave, which keeps coming back to us, like the echo. So 
when we look at it, it starts to make more sense. But we have to have an approach that is coming from a place of discernment and not so much of an attachment as to what we think anicca is, for example. Because oftentimes we look at things in a non-personal way, almost like a anicca is something I find somewhere. It's just like the Dhamma. I find it in the sutta. It's there. Go look for it completely separate from my life. And that is not the way to know what suffering is. And what Lord Buddha is trying to say here, the way I understand it is that as we're releasing that cry into the cave, it is suffering. And when it's coming back, it's also suffering when it comes back to us because of our identifications, because of our holding on to, this is how this relationship is supposed to go. Why are you changing in front of my eyes? Who told you to change? Who told you to become a different person? Sometimes we say this to ourselves. We can't fight back, but we also especially say it to the people or the world around us, and we get into this fight in all cases, though, we're talking about suffering that is due to impermanence. Meanwhile, there's nobody else in the dark calling back to us, and that is anatta, non-substantiality. Bhikkhus, sense awareness, which is uh, what usually is translated as consciousness for vijnana, Bhikkhu, sense awareness in its essence is non-substantial because if sense awareness were to have a substantiality to it, then it would not disintegrate or fall apart. Where one could even be driven to say, may my sense awareness be this way or that, substantial and unchanging. In every living situation, in every experience, whether it's coming in through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, we see that each of these senses are fighting, vying for our attention. Hey, look at me. Hey, I need to be the dominant one. Whether it's the taste buds, whether it's the ears bringing in healthy ears, bringing the voice, the vibrations to the eardrum, processing all that. Every single one of them is trying to be the most predominant sense awareness or consciousness that is overwhelming our awareness, let's say, where we become cognizant of the world around us. So each of them is like wanting to become the dominant ambassador of the world, the dominant, the loudmouth of the moment. And where we can get to be pulled into the world, engaged more strongly with the world, basically becoming slaves to the world. That's why uh, last week, uh, the question I think came up about restraint, sense restraint, what is that? Well, sense restraint, we apply it when we are noticing the mind being too laxed, unmindful, uh, not present, completely unaware. There's no clear comprehension, uh, no wise attention where the person becomes a slave to these senses. 
slaves. And that is what the world is always trying to have us become. And we have a modern term for it. We call it consumerism, uh, to my understanding. Uh, and uh, because all of these points of contact, that's what the sense doors are trying to do anyhow, or are points of contact, points of impingement, if you like. They are trying to tease and tantalize us. It's like if you've ever seen the movie from the 70s and the early 80s, Star Wars, a classic. You know, you had the Death Star and it had this gravitational pull that if any spaceship got too close to it, guess what? The Death Star would grab hold of it. It would override their system and it would start to pull it in towards it hold the, 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 the inhabitants of the spaceship, the travelers, uh, its own captive. They had no control. They couldn't pull away. The gravitational force was so strong and that is what the six senses are trying to do. The, uh, the, the vijnanas, sense awarenesses, um, whether it's a smell, whether it's a sound, whether it's a sight, and it could be either way, it could be un, uh, unpleasant, meaning disgusting sight, something we call disgusting, or smell. And uh, they have their own gradations depending on the experience. For example, a smell might be pretty bad just on its own, but try to put that smell into a food that you're eating, which is also bad tasting, which is also bad, you know, just visually. So there are different gradations of how intensely they can overwhelm us. I use the word tantalize or tease. Well, overwhelming can also be good or bad. So they're always, each of these is always trying to capture, always, the spotlight, the main position. And what Lord Buddha is saying is throughout the teachings, he's giving the key to unlock this mystery, to, to release us from this slavery. And that is Yoni Somanasikara. Wise attentiveness will cut the gravitational pull of the world because the sense doors are also the doors of avidya. That's another way of, of, of looking at the sense doors. Uh, if there is no wise attentiveness or wise attention, and that's why we need to constantly apply sati, apply it. That's the only way out of sansara. That's what Lord Buddha taught for 45 years. Don't become slaves to the senses. We can still use them. We can still be applying them and living in the world, but not of it. Remember that phrase? Well, that is applicable and doable thanks to Yoni Somanasikara. And Lord Buddha continues, but because, because sense awareness in its essence is non-substantial, it does disintegrate and fall apart where one could not be able to say, may my sense awareness be this way or that, substantial or unchanging. 
even if you are sitting on the most comfortable sofa, the most comfortable uh, uh, bed you're sleeping on, and you say, I'm never going to leave this place. You know, it's perfect. Even if you're in the, in the center of Bora Bora or somewhere that you love to be, let's say, imagine yourself in front of a waterfall in the middle of Costa Rican rainforest covered up in this beautiful bungalow. Okay, one day passes, two day passes, three weeks pass. You're like, okay, uh, my back is hurting. I need to go out and see what's over there on the other side of the world. All of a sudden, what was perceived as heavenly now becomes hellish, a terrible experience. Again, anicca dukkha. Even though we were so identified with it, we were so atta with it, Lord Buddha saying, it was always anatta. So the, the person who, the sooner we realize this, the better. However, what this indicates is our attachment to the kileshas, the defilements that I was mentioning earlier. You know, um, what are we taking refuge in? Like this morning, we took refuge again before we sat. Buddhan Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhammang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sangang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Sangha. But in reality, most of the time, we're actually doing, as Ajahn Ben would say, Kileshang um, Saranangachami. <laughs> We're taking refuge in the kileshas. Honestly, I mean, look at your life. You're, you're the, the expert at living your life. Is it truly a situation where it is buddhang saranangachami? Or is it kileshang saranangachami? So long as we are slaves to the sense doors, that's what we're doing. Slaves to our feelings, slaves to our bodies, slaves to what we are experiencing, sights. Oh, I don't want to look at that. I, I want to look more at things like this. I want to experience more things like that than this. I want to run away from this. So meanwhile, the kileshas are just tossing and thrashing us around, about, all over the place. And... There is no awareness that, that, that sati is not like just a course requirement, you know, to be a stream runner, but it's something there to heal us from being tossed around. So it is for our own protection that we apply yoni sikara. It's the only way to eliminate suffering, Lord Buddha says. And this Dhamma is the only one that provides that. No other teaching does that. You know, there were people who were reaching very uh, high states of calm, tranquility. They were doing good deeds even before Lord Buddha showed up. Even when there was no sasana, there was no Buddhism, there were no Four Noble Truths. As far as the Dhamma is concerned, it was the Dark Ages for eons. But there were people who were doing good deeds but you can do good deeds with tons of kileshas. 
there are many teachers out there in the world, some in robes, some are not, who are teaching good deeds, be kind, be compassionate, be kind, be compassionate, do good deeds. Okay, then what else? That is lacking in Dhamma, pure and simple. Because there is no personality change taking place within the person. So this is the time period where we need to practice the Dhamma before it is completely gone, the teachings completely gone. And Lord Buddha's teachings are the only ones that can actually provide us with this exit. And I say this because of Sangvega. We need to have the urgency to apply it while we're still alive, while we still have access, while we still have a body and a brain that can process these things, that can apply. What are the five aggregates? What is this whole business about anatta? What can I truly understand, etc.? So long as we have a body, we have everything. We have a brain can, that can process, we have everything we need. But we need to bring our part. We need to bring in, like Webu uh, Sayadaw would say, this, we need to bring in the determination to make this, which is the only practice available that can do this that can still do this because even the Dhamma is so corrupt these days, so corrupt. But somehow we still are fortunate enough to still get this, the teachings that come to us through the Pali Suttas. But what do we do with them? Let us apply it more and more in our daily life. And here's where Lord Buddha goes into Q&A form of, of, of teaching. Um, and you're going to see how he connects each of these uh, form, etc., to the three characteristic, characteristics of existence. Starts by saying, now, what do you think, Vikus? Would you say that form is permanent or impermanent? It is impermanent, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent be a cause for suffering or pleasure? A cause for suffering, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent, unstable, and a cause for suffering be looked upon as this is mine, this thing and I are one and the same, or that this is myself? No, Bhante, it could not. Here uh, we see the beginning. Uh, um, teaching uh, modality of how to decipher or unravel, uh, dissect, if you will, the Paticca Samuppada, 12 links of causation. So here is where we see the, the equation, the formula. Uh, but of course, Lord Buddha is not getting into the Paticca Samuppada per se, but he's using the five aggregates, one at a time, as, as we're going to see, indicating that, that they're all dukkha, if there's impermanence, there's dukkha, there's suffering. Uh, now, what do you think, Bhikkhus? Would you say that feeling is, uh, feeling is permanent or impermanent? It is impermanent, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent be a cause for suffering or pleasure? A cause for suffering, Bhante. 
And could that which is impermanent, unstable, and a cause for suffering be looked upon as this is mine, this thing and I are one and the same, or that this is myself? Here, th these three, um, this is who I am, this, is the, this and I are one and the same, and this is myself. These are often called the three types of grasping or upadana. And the first one is etang mama, which is coming from um, this. Is, this is mine, basically, and it comes from wrong view, wrong view. And the first fetter that gets to be uh, dropped in a person who has attained sotapatti, uh, someone who has seen with the dhamma eye, is sakaya ditti, the personality view or this uh, personality wrong view. Uh, and this statement the, of, of uh, this is mine, etang mama, that is coming from wrong view. Um, and the second one comes from craving. Um, this thing and I are one and the same. Esohang uh, asmi, which comes out of tanha, uh, the craving or the thirst, the continued sense of thirst. And um, the third one, uh, this is myself, uh, is the third grasping. Uh, that comes from conceit or mana, mana. Eso me atati, eso me atati, which is uh, coming again from the sense of conceit. By the way, all these three graspings are necessary for there to be papanchas, mental proliferations, which we've talked about extensively in the past, especially in, when we covered the Madhupindika Sutta. So, uh, but these are the three stampings that we use to um, look at our lives, basically. Um, so impermanent things cause us pain. That's what Lord Buddha is saying, suffering. And whatever is conditioned, then it itself is impermanent. You put those conditions together, all of a sudden you have this. You take one of those conditions out, boom. Um, in high school, I used to, um, whenever we did math problems, algebra, this and that, and then I would miss out a single or I would misplace a single symbol or uh, the decimal point. That was a fun one. Um, all of a sudden, all that effort that you put into that equation, the work that you were showing, and you know you have the answer correct, and the paper comes back and you didn't get the point. Why? Because there was one condition that was misplaced. In modern days, we have uh, coding, let's say, if you do any uh, software engineering and design, so you do apply codes, uh, for computer language. And if you misplace one single letter or number or whatever they use, the code doesn't do what it's supposed to. It does something else. So it's the same thing when we're looking at the impermanency of this conditional existence that we call life. And there isn't anything fixed or substantial about it. It's always morphing. It's always in... Um, in motion. However, we want to have things be fixed 
And that is the thing which is causing us suffering. So there needs to be an understanding of the relationship between the suffering and its origin. And this takes us back to the first sutta that we, uh, well, the Dhamma Chakapavata, the turning of the wheel of the uh, Dhamma, um, where we saw the Four Noble Truths. This is playing, this is following along the same path that was started. So we saw the relationship between suffering and its origin, its causes, and uh, which are no more than our attachment to things. The thirst, the drive to change what is happening in front of us, which for whatever reason we cannot tolerate. Now, what do you think, Vikus? Would you say that mental associations are permanent or impermanent? They are impermanent, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent be a cause for suffering or pleasure? A cause for suffering, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent, unstable, and a cause for suffering be looked upon as this is mine, this thing and I are one and the same, or that this is myself? No, Bhante, it could not. Um, Concepts, notions, perceptions uh, that we like, we hoard them, we keep them in, we keep them close to us. Those that we don't like, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Even if they were part and parcel of who we were, of who, how we thought. And this falls in line with what I was mentioning earlier about defilements that we identify in others where we want to go outside and fix the world around us by changing the way that other people think. What we're trying to do is basically to reduce our suffering. But it is only when that sense of displeasure or pain is no more that we get some relief. Whether the world changes or not, whether that person over there, your boss, your supervisor, your colleague changes, and becomes a better person or not, it really should not, based on this teaching, affect us um, in gaining um, that sense of tranquility and contentment. So, because ultimately pleasure and pain are two sides of the same coin, we can't have one without the other. And the same goes with impermanence and suffering. So long as things are impermanent, there will be suffering. Just knowing that march is actually protecting us tremendously. Uh, because it shows us the transitoriness of, of, of the, the, you cannot count basically on impermanence. And uh, now, what do you think, Bhikkhus? Would you say that mental habits are permanent or impermanent? They are impermanent, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent be a cause for suffering or pleasure? A cause for suffering, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent, unstable, and a cause for suffering be looked upon as this is mine, this thing and I are one and the same, or that, that this is myself? No, Bhante, it could not. 
We've been growing old, even from the time that we sat today to this hearing me speak, <laughs> we're getting older, we're decaying. We die to experiences. Relationships are coming and going. Things are dropping away constantly, ever since of our birth, in fact. The best example that comes to mind, in fact, is our umbilical cord. When we were born, portion of the umbilical was left for most of us on the body. And I remember when my younger brother was, was born, uh, I noticed, I was old enough to understand, but I said, mom, what is that? Asking my mom about when, whenever she changed him. And she would tell me that's the umbilical, but what, what is that? It looks ugly. It looks this, it's that. And then she would say, don't look at that. Just, just, but it'll fall off. And I said, how could that fall off? It's part of him. Until one day it did fall off, just like it had fallen off of me and everyone else. Things have been dropping away from us, from physically our body. So if we don't believe in <laughs> impermanence or, or, or non-substantiality, that's a perfect example. If we don't believe about the hair, then we don't want to see it rather. That was the last remnant of physical reminder of our journey inside our mother's womb. And ever since then, countless pounds of skin cells, hair, nails, uh, uh, head hairs, all kinds of cells have been falling off of our bodies ceaselessly. But we like to have this sense of continuity this sense of unchanging character about us, even though everything, including our concepts, are changing. Now, what do you think, Because would you say that sense awareness is permanent and impermanent? It is impermanent, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent be a cause for suffering or pleasure? A cause for suffering, Bhante. And could that which is impermanent, unstable, and a cause for suffering be looked upon as this is mine, this thing and I are one and the same, or that this is myself? No, Bhante, it could not. In this manner, because whenever you encounter any kind of forms whatsoever, whether it may be from the past, present, or future, whether witnessed internally or externally, whether of a gross or subtle nature, whether being of an inferior or superior quality, all, the, all these you must look upon as they truly are in reality and with the correct understanding thus. This is not mine. This thing and I are not one and the same. This is not myself. Similarly, because whenever you encounter any kind of feelings whatsoever, whether it may be from the past, present, or future, whether witnessed internally or externally, whether of a gross or subtle nature, whether being of an inferior or superior quality, all these you must look upon as they truly are in reality and with the correct understanding thus. This is not mine. This thing and I are not one and the same. 
this is not myself. But it's, it's important for us not to pay it lip service, just like I was mentioning about the taking of the refuge. Namotasa Bhagavato Aratu Samasam, or specifically, Buddhang Saranangachami, I take refuge in the Buddha. Am I paying lip service? When in fact, what I'm saying is Kileshang Saranangachami. Same thing when we're saying, this is not mine, this thing and I are not one and the same, this is not myself. This is not some mantra that we can say repeatedly on a superficial level while the heart is going on a different journey altogether, opposite to this direction. Similarly, because whenever you encounter any kind of mental associations whatsoever, whether they may be from the past, present, or future, whether witnessed internally or externally, whether of a gross or subtle nature, whether being of an inferior or superior quality, all these you must look upon as they truly are in reality and with the correct understanding thus, this is not mine, this thing and I are not one and the same, this is not myself. I noticed some, uh, some encounters I've had over the years that we have a tendency to intellectualize things, especially where many of us come from a thinking background in a sense, uh, um, where things have to make sense conceptually. Um, we try to similarly tr uh, attempt at figuring out anatta intellectually, understanding the Four Noble Truths intellectually. Uh, but, you know, I get it. Like the people say, I get it, I get it. You know, I understand the Four Noble Truths. That's not it though. Yes, it's necessary because it's part of pariyati, of the studying part. It allows us to remember, to recall to mind, to keep it in the heart and just like, okay, let me replay that tape in my head. Four Noble Truths, suffering, origin of suffering, Nirodha, cessation, and then the path. Okay, what's the path about? Oh, okay, yeah, right view. Okay, let's start with that. Does this thing that I'm doing have right view in it? That is application, turning that intellect-based knowledge, basically, into something that is valid and pertinent to your life, to your living experience. But that requires constant monitoring, constant observation from us, where we become aware of, of seeing what is happening, discerning what is happening, what is taking place, and how essentially we are contributing to our own suffering, ultimately. And that is what the whole point of Sati Sampajanya is, the way I see it. Why do we become mindful and, and, and clearly comprehending of what? What is it? The table that's there, the computer, this? No. We're becoming mindful and comprehending clearly of our contribution to this whole perpetuation of suffering. Is there or are there papanjas playing in my intention here? to do this, which also indicates the presence of, if they're papanchas, 
there are wrong views there. So intellect is not to be shunned at all. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's necessary, the reasoning, the rationality, all of that is necessary, but they by themselves are nothing. This is an application-based practice. So the listener to this sutta must need to have a strong foundation in both. Understanding intellectually and application of it. In addition, like I was mentioning earlier, this is not just a, a, a awakening is not going to happen simply by intellectually understanding. It also needs practice, yes, but what kind of practice? It needs both, samadhi and vipassana. Both have to be there. Samadhi is the mental calm practice through the jhanas, as well as the vipassana, which is the insight that needs to be happening, the insights that need to be constantly happening. And the insight can only happen when the mind is discerning throughout the different phases of a life that's, that the person is going through. So it's very engaging. It's very engaging. Otherwise, anyone who rationally gets it, as gets the teachings, could basically call themselves an arahant. Yeah, which can be quite comical. Similarly, bhikkhus, whenever you encounter any kind of mental habits whatsoever, sankaras, whether they may be from the past, present, or future, whether witnessed internally or externally, whether of a gross or subtle nature, whether being of an inferior or superior quality, all these you must look upon as they truly are in reality and with the correct understanding thus. This is not mine. This thing and I are not one and the same. This is not myself. This is crucial to have when we, we some of us, find ourselves in constant, like the dog chasing its own tail type of a situation, where we see that we have a habitual tendency to do something that, that we don't necessarily like about ourselves, but we constantly do it and we identify with it. Um, people dealing with addictions, uh, people dealing with toxic tendencies uh, where they self-sabotage or individuals having experienced trauma where they always have this self-disparaging inner talker, the nagging voice, I call it, uh, or, or the imposter syndrome is another one. I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. That's all from sankharas, either from this life or from previous lives. I'm not going to go after them. Even today's modern trauma researchers say, don't try to get rid of the trauma. You can't. It's done. So even today's psychotherapy, uh, today's psychotherapists are saying that. So why should I even bother? Okay, but I can look at my relationship with it. And that's what they are also saying, by the way. It took them about 2,600 years to get to this point, what Lord Buddha explained. 
You can't change the trauma. You can change the relationship you have with the trauma, with the addiction, with the negative habitual pattern. And that requires us to somewhat distance ourselves from it as this is mine. You and I are one and the same. That erroneous uh, approach, wrong view, michaditi, wrong view, is what we're looking at. But it needs constant checking and rechecking and checking and rechecking so that we see with the help of sati, with the help of clearly comprehending using our meditation object wisely to bring it into our daily life so we can see these glued identifications and see, no, 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 no. This is just something that I had the tendency of doing. I am not it. It is not me. Ah, so you can play around with the words so long as you can anthropomorphize it, if you will bring it more into some type of a relatability uh, having a flavor of that where you can you can you can identify it as hmm, something that i am identifying with <laughs> if that makes sense um, uh, words fail after some you know some time as you can see i'm struggling with my words uh, similarly, because whenever you encounter any kind of sense awareness whatsoever, vinyana, whether it may be from the past, present, or future, whether witnessed internally or externally, whether of a gross or subtle nature, whether being of an inferior or superior quality, all these you must look upon as they truly are in reality, and with the correct understanding thus, this is not mine, this thing and I are not one and the same. This is not myself. And if you notice, it says whether if it's a, 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 of an inferior or superior quality. Many people get stuck on um, wanting to have a certain jhanic experience happen. Or a certain insight to reoccur. Or how come I'm not able to reach that state of contentment that I did. And every sit that they have, every time they try to meditate, they are trying to recapture that. And that is such an unfair thing to do to themselves. So as teachers, I have, uh, we have to disconnect them from such a wrong view. Because here we see Lord Buddha saying, that is also part of anatta. You have no control over that. And this is a hard lesson for many students because they just were able to get to the first jhana and now they know that there's more stuff to experience. They want to experience the second one. And But the colors that they're using, the palette, the color palette that they're using is coming straight from the first jhanic experience, which by the way, they had no clue prior to it happening no clue prior to it occurring. But now they're using that to figure out what's coming up next, which is completely wrong view. So that is where the person has to allow themselves that openness, allow themselves to just be present and with a beginner's mind, because ultimately it is independent of them wanting certain outcomes. 
what they can do is they can create the right conditions, of course. But other than that, you have to pull your hands away and allow it to happen, whatever is supposed to happen. So there, is need, there needs to be that sense of humility, approaching it like that. So as you see, this sutta is taught to dismantle our concepts, our conceptions about ourselves, about life, about what is happening to us. And the constant longing after things that we have. So this is addressing the, in a way, it's an antidote that is addressing the disease in the heart that is always try, uh, striving, trying to uh, reject life. That's another way of looking at it. Rejection of life, of what is taking place, good or bad. Whatever is happening in front of us, in us, to our ideas, to our attachments. So this sutta is an antidote to that. And the closest evidence or the closest way that the, the, the quickest way that we can apply this antidote is by looking at our attachment to this body. How I would like my body to not fall apart so quickly, at least give me an extra 40, 50, 60 years or until I send you a note and saying now it's time, it's okay for you to get old. So it is about having us challenge our identifications um, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis by bringing to mind the principles covered in this sutta. Um, so like everything else throughout the teachings of Lord Buddha, here also in the sutta, we see how Lord Buddha so lovingly uh, tries to cure the sickness, this disease of the heart. Um, by sharing this uh, understanding, his wisdom with the bhikkhus uh, that had been suffering, uh, even as sotapannas, because so long as we are not arahants yet, we are suffering. Yes, of course, much less. Uh, as a sotapanna, you would be suffering much less than the putujanas, but still, there is suffering going on. So he's trying to ameliorate the situation by removing the sickness of rejecting the truth of each moment that is taking place. The sickness of each moment where, where we want to go ahead and, and reject what is taking place. That opposition, if you will, the refusal to see that there's nothing worth grabbing onto, all kinds of identifications. And every day there's a new identification. Oh, I need you to identify me this way. I need you to identify me that way. Or I identify you this way. All these crazy identifications get us more and more into the solidifying concrete of ignorance when the whole purpose of awakening is the opposite, in the opposite direction, away from these identifications. So the sooner we see that, 
the sooner our suffering will disappear. So continuing on. By seeing in this manner, because the noble disciple in training become, by the way, the noble disciple in training is someone who has seen with the Dhammai, uh, meaning that there is Sotapanna or Sakadagamin or even an uh, Anagamin. These are primarily the disciples in training. When a person becomes an Arahant, especially an Arahant with Pala or fruition, they're no longer in training. They're called Aseka, beyond training. So when we hear that noble disciple in training, we're talking about a noble disciple, somebody who belongs, uh, who is considered as uh, experiencing uh, Nibbana on one of these levels, but not an Arahant. The noble disciple in training becomes naturally pulled away and disenchanted from all kinds of forms, disenchanted from all kinds of feelings, disenchanted from all kinds of mental associations, notions, concepts, disenchanted from all kinds of mental habits, sankharas, and disenchanted from all kinds of sense awareness, vijnana. Being thus pulled away and disenchanted from all these, he becomes dispassionate. And as a result of his dispassion, his mind is freed and his heart released. Being thus released, there arises within him direct knowledge and understanding, as he knows for the first time. It is now finally liberated. Let us note here that how there is no reference of a self says, it is now liberated. In Pali, the term is vimutisming vimutang iti nyanang bhoti. And with his, uh, with this experience, the sutta continues, he fully comprehends. Now, birth is finally destroyed. The holy life has been fully lived. What had to be done is now done and finished. There is no further coming to any state of re-becoming. This is what the Blessed One said. And in hearing the words of the Blessed One, the group of five bhikkhus rejoiced in their hearts. For while this discourse was being taught by the Tathagata, the hearts of all five bhikkhus, through no longer grasping onto anything, suddenly were released from the contaminants completely. And now there were six Arahants living in the world. Uh, as mentioned, this was, um, uh, this took place the, on the fifth day after uh, the Lord Buddha turned the wheel of Dhamma in motion. Um, so you have now uh, five additional arahants. Um, I think here I included it from the, la uh, the last sentence I included from the Mahavagga, which is from the Vinaya. I thought it was just beautiful um, to have that be there uh, in the sutta itself. And so here is where we see the sasana or Buddhism as such being established for the first time. 
because now you had Sangha. Um, and, uh, and and Sangha that was Maha Sangha. When we use the word Maha, obviously it comes from uh, Sanskrit and in Pali it's the same. It means great, great Sangha. It is not the collection of number of people, basically uh, five, 10, 20, 500. That doesn't mean that, that is a Maha Sangha even though many places that's how many people translate it as. Unfortunately, that is completely wrong because when we say Maha Sangha, what we're referring to are those individuals who have attained any of the stages of awakening, whether they're noble disciples or arahants. Uh, so that is what makes the Sangha Maha. Um, so this is uh, an effort that needs to go beyond mere intellectual endeavor. Um, or it's not the, the accumulation of some didactic reasoning or rationally figuring things out, um, using the information in front of us to figure it out. That's not it. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, we need a foundation of understanding. Uh, but we need to take it into practice. And um, so the mind must be prepared first through wise attentiveness and with wise firmness of exertion. And that includes sati and sampajanya, that includes sangvega, the sense of urgency, that definitely includes the driving force, which is aditana, when you get up and you don't feel like, or something happens to you and you say, no, I'm just gonna, lay low and not be involved in any of this work of being mindful or heedfulness. Instead, we need to constantly apply ourselves to what was listened to and learned and kept in the heart and bringing that into the meditation practice where it all comes together. So uh, I will pause here and um, and thank you for listening and uh, sharing of these uh, gems with you. Um, so if there's any uh, there are any questions and comments, please unmute yourself and This was one of the um, toughest suttas uh, um, in my journey through the through studying of the Dhamma in this life of how I have always been intimidated by it because I guess it had to do with Venerable Kondanya going from a Sotapanna straight to Arahant. Not just him, all, all of them, all five became Arahants. So I was always like, oh, I have to understand. I have to, I have to apply, I have to apply, I have to apply. And then, oh, so you, you kind of put it over there 
and it's almost like an untouchable sutta, which comes from my own delusion, of course, ignorance. And we need to overcome those and look at our own relationship to that. Because oftentimes we um, shun certain things because of our attachment to how we want to see things to be in the first place, meaning my identification with my own concepts and ex expectations. So, which also is one of the biggest uh, hindrance in our practice. Uh, because we don't want to relinquish what was experienced yesterday. We don't want to let go of the mental calm or, or, or we want to repeat it. Um, and we're not so open to possibilities of whatever happens to happen which is the reason why we were at that state of allowance, allowing that, let's say, if we're talking about jhanas, that that jhana occurred. You were completely available, allowing that that state of mind took place. So that is what needs to be brought into the scene. More of that permissive, allowance, allowing of, I'm trusting you, I'm trusting the process. And that is something you can definitely take refuge in also. When we take refuge in the triple gem, what are we doing? We're taking refuge in not the historical Buddha who lived and died 2,600 years ago almost, but the potential of that awakening to also happen within me here now in the 21st century, in the middle of this chaos, it could still happen. Oh, can I trust that? Trusting in my goodness, uh, sometimes we use that term. Can I trust that? Hmm. Why not? If there are no questions, I think we're going to end sooner than normally. Thanks very much, Bhante. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, I would say that in many ways, this sutta and uh, the previous sutta that we have discussed, the, the uh, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, are closely related to a few other suttas namely um, the first sutta in the Majjhimanikaya, uh, the Mulapariyaya sutta, and one of the last uh, suttas in the, the same Majjhimanikaya, the Chachaka sutta, and even, for example, the um, I think it's the second sutta in the Diganikaya, the Samanapala sutta. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference is probably in the uh, in the details. Uh, whereby um, the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the Chachaka Sutta, probably um, has much more elaborations, much more um, explanations yeah, yeah, into the details, which are succinctly summarized um, by the other uh, in uh, this particular sutta and also especially the Bahia sutta.
So um, I would say that we all arrive at the same conclusion, but um, probably um, speaking for myself, I think I find, uh, I find the details more digestible than um, what I am experiencing now. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. Um, this is where we have the foundation. Um, these uh, primary uh, few suttas. Foundation of what? Foundation of the sasana, in fact. That's, uh, you know, the Dhammachakka Pavatana, Anattalakana Sutta, Hemavata Sutta, and uh, Aditya Pariyaya Sutta. These four uh, that we'll be covering. Uh, the next one, I think, will be the Aditya Pariyaya. Um, actually, probably the Hemavata, which I have to still translate. Um, that comes from the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest set of suttas, uh, all of the Nikayas that were around even at the time of the Buddha. Uh, so the bhikkhus would memorize and chant or recite them in the presence of Lord Buddha. Uh, so coming back straight to your question, um, we have to look at who the crowd was, if you will who the audience was here. These five were individuals who have lived together along with Lord Buddha as Siddhartha in the past, which now Lord Buddha had full access to their minds and their capacities, giving, given the power of the Buddha. And he saw the ability, he saw what nuances, he saw what uh, tweakings are necessary. And as a teacher, one thing that makes a teacher a teacher, you know, better teacher than someone else, let's say, is their ability to identify what needs to be said, when and how, and in what manner so that they could get the most best result, best outcome for the student. Understanding the main message of the teaching so that they can improve their learning or in this case attain the highest attainment that a human that a being could have which is arahanship and there's also the presence of pride among the five that's also there there's a, a presence of conceit because they were still latching on even though they had accepted there is still pride. I mean, Sotapannas, yes, they have dropped those uh, three uh, fetters, but there's still delusion. There's still ignorance. There's still conceit, in fact. Um, I know better, including towards one's own teacher, in this case, Lord Buddha, because they were still struggling with the, wait a minute, weren't you that same guy that was you know, with us for six years? Yeah, you're talking differently. Yes, your mannerisms are different. Yeah. There is still that stain in the mind. So Lord Buddha had to approach. This is, of course, my own way of understanding uh, 
the sutta. Other teachers, other individuals, other practitioners might have a different view um, on this. But using, approaching the three graspings, this is mine. This and I are not one and the same, or this is myself. By him looking at that and really shedding uh, a light on that, instead of, let's say, going into, for example, the Tachaka Sutta from the Ma, uh, uh, Majjhima Nikaya, um, which goes into in depth six sets of six analysis, deep, deep, continuous. It's, it's almost like repetitive it's not almost it's very repetitive but it is it's like you know hammering a nail in continuously continuously or using those those two dry pieces of wood continuously to create that fire that spark because lord buddha didn't cover it here uh again this is what has remained through centuries and reached us thankfully at least this portion uh, we didn't have a recording device so to record exactly what was said but this is uh, what we have of that encounter between lord buddha and his students the five so the simplest way of delivery was this now later on we see the other suttas Dumula Pariyaya, why, you know, what was the root of it all? How did it happen? Or Samanyapala, or how Samanapala, uh, the, 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 the recluseship, the different aspects of it. What led to this, the holy life, where Lord Buddha goes into details, how he suffered, for example, as a self-mortifying ascetic. And then he goes into details about the practice. Well, these people are already experts at self-mortification. They're expert of that one extreme. Lord Buddha was an expert at both. And he was helping them by using a language that was common to both himself and to them. So there was this sense of relatedness and perhaps there was also a lot of intellectual understanding as well. Because remember, these five were Brahmin. And uh, Venerable Kondanya, he himself was a prodigy. And he knew the Vedas very well. And he was also a Samana now for years. And the other four were also children of Brahmin, Brahmin uh, class. Brahmins, the, the seers, the rishis that had come to uh, identify uh, Siddhartha when he was a baby. Uh, so they were very rich with knowledge and intellect. Uh, so Lord Buddha didn't want to waste time. And his point was to get the person from A to Z as quickly as possible, which I love. He does not waste time. He does not waste time. Now, of course, it has everything to do with the student being ready. So if the student has a lot more dust 
the, the, the layer of dust in their eyes, as they say, in, you know, with Brahma Sampati's reference, if it's too thick, then the teacher has to go probing more. He has to say a lot more. <laughs> That's why Lord Buddha didn't like it when a student came with too many questions. Uh, in fact, right before his, uh, in Mahaparinibbana Sutta, there's one person who used to come and ask questions and he would always go away. And he had done this for years. He would just love engaging in conversations and it's like, oh boy, again he came. That's what Venerable Ananda saw this person approach and is like, oh, you again? The master is about to die. He's about to breathe his last breath and you're here to ask him questions. And But that day, that moment, that evening, that person had come because he had realized the futility of all those questions of him being the argumentative type. He had come simply to become a bhikkhu. And not only that, obviously, to become an arahant. He knew this was my chance. And he approaches. But then Lord Buddha sees with his mind, because Venerable Ananda is arguing with this gentleman saying no we don't lord buddha doesn't have time for you for the likes of you lord buddha sees with his mind the mind of this person who has come in i forgot his name sudatta it could be oh um and he sees that he's ready he sees that he's ready he's not going to go into chachaka sutta he's not going to go into uh, any of the other in-depth suttas to analyze the five aggregates none of that just he just needed a, a morsel of wisdom just a tiny little bit just a nudge and he came lord buddha gives him that and in fact he gives him also the uh upasampada he gives him the ordination right there and that person that night becomes an arahant and that person was the last person who attained uh, while Lord Buddha was alive, uh, attained arahanship. And he was also the last person who um, was ordained by Lord Buddha uh, prior to you know, dying. So the student's capacity is very important. Um, as in any area of uh, pedagogy or, or teaching or education, the student's level has to be extremely, um, um, well, it needs to be brought into the equation when we're looking at the suttas. The best example is the one that you gave of, of the Bahia Sutta. And that's why Bahia was known recognized by Lord Buddha as the foremost out of the 80 students who was the quickest in attaining with the shortest of teachings. What does that say? Was it with the teaching itself? Or was it more having to do with the level of preparedness that was done? Was the soil cultivated? Was it fertile enough? And there's obviously, you know, so many uh, aspects to that. Uh, the merits have to be there. The, well, obviously the person has to have the ability to think. They also have to have the calmness of mind. 
and the level of understanding. So in the case of Bahia, if you recall, he was one of those group of seven because who had gone up in a previous, uh, I believe it was uh, Padumuttara or uh, Kassapa Buddha's time, I, uh, up this cliff and they kicked away the ladder from civilization, connected them to civilization. And uh, he was one of those bhikkhus who died on that rock face without having attained. But his aditana was impeccable. He died trying. That doesn't disappear with the person. So that is what Bahia had. So the student was ready. So sometimes it's just a tiny little touch and then everything is different. So in this case, yes, it's not Bahya Sutta. It's a lot more detailed than Bahya Sutta, of course. But it's a lot less in content than, let's say, the other uh, suttas you mentioned. So um, we have to look at, uh, look at the contexts of what is taking place, who is listening. These were superlative meditators the five uh, top level meditators um, and their level of dedication was impeccable and Lord Buddha knew that and um, and he had lived with them uh, but uh, when we recite or read the Chaka Sutta or uh, even suttas like you know Samaditi Sutta that Venerable Sariputta gave to his fellow bhikkhus um, you don't have everybody in the crowd being on that level of dedication or of practice. That's why Venerable Sariputta, for example, has to go through so many different layers of what is right view and breaking it down, unraveling, spoon feeding, if you will, the tiniest little, the biggest context, uh, you know, concepts, the tiniest concepts, etc using different references and similes. So uh, timing, the level of uh, the student's capacity to understand are two very important. They're not the only important criteria, but they are very, very key ingredients in the whole equation of uh, why a sutta was more elaborate in depth than another. How is that? Uh, um, do you feel like that was satisfactory? The answer I gave you? Yes, definitely. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me, Bhante. Thanks very much. And sure. as I re uh, recollect, um, I think the very first um, uh, persons to appear on the Buddha's mind after he gained enlightenment was um, his previous teachers, uh, Alala. Alara Kalama and uh, Udaka uh, Ramaputta. Mm -hmm. um, uh, th those are the first uh, persons whom he probably think would uh, gain enlightenment immediately mm -hmm. um, were he to uh, give them a, um, a day now. But unfortunately, they were, uh, they, were uh, they were already dead. Yes. And that is, uh, if there's anything sad 
I call that an example of sadness or um, uh, terrible because a missed opportunity, a perfect example of a missed opportunity where you had these two highly evolved or highly, uh, well, superlative again, uh, meditators, teachers of that time period in all of humanity. And they're that close, they're born at the time of the Buddha. In fact, they taught him as Siddhartha. And yes, they were the first two that came to mind once uh, Brahma Sahampati convinced Lord Buddha to teach and he left. He looked, oh, who would be able to absorb the Dhamma beautifully? Whose soil is ready to absorb it quickly? And um, both of those teachers came up. Unfortunately, one had died seven days earlier and the other one had died just the night prior. And the next time that they will come out of that, those realms, one is uh, reborn because of their high jhanic one-pointedness of concentration and their intentionality behind uh, uh, where to go next. Um, it, uh, when they died, uh, one uh, reappeared in the realm of neither perception nor non-perception, where there's no perception as such of anything, of mind even. Otherwise, Lord Buddha could have communicated the Dhamma from mind to mind, but that's not possible. Um, and that is 84,000 Mahakalpas to spend there. What a life sentence even though it's like the highest um, sublime state, if you want to call it. That's what they were aiming for. That's what many people aim for to this day in parts of the world when they do some yogic practice, including in, in, in the Dhamma. And the other one um, had died and gone to the uh, realm of nothingness, which has 60,000 Mahakalpas. Again, who knows when they come back? Hopefully they will come back. Um, and, uh, you know, there is the reference made in regards to Devadatta. Devadatta, Lord Buddha's own brother-in-law, cousin, um, he who had tried to kill the Lord Buddha several times. Um, despite the fact that he had such evil intentions and despite the fact that he is in some of the worst parts of the hell realms uh, and he's going to be there for a long time. Um, Lord Buddha nevertheless said that um, Devadatta will one day uh, even be able to attain Arahantri. Um, um, uh, I believe uh, attaining Pacheka Buddha uh, status, who basically cannot have any students, cannot teach it. They can experience it, but you know they can't teach it. So if a Devadatta, a character like that, can have 
because he also had merits after all. He met the Buddha. He took ordination. Lord Buddha was his upajaya, his preceptor. I mean, come on. They played together as children. He experienced the jhanas. Well, a portion of the jhanas uh, up until the fourth jhana. He heard Lord Buddha teach. So that says a lot. The other two teachers never got that chance. So Devadatta had many more chances that, of course, he didn't make much use of because he was gone in conceit and, and, and he lost all those jhanas. Because the moment you go against the sasana, the moment you go against the dhamma, whatever attainments you had slip from you immediately. You cannot have them. There's no way that you can get into any jhana or any meditative absorption for that matter. So that's what had happened to Devadatta. So without digressing too much, um, I am hopeful that those two teachers will be able to uh, come uh, back to a realm where they can be exposed to um, a Dhamma from a future Buddha long after we're gone. Uh, so, yeah. Good question. Appreciate it. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Before we close? Okay. Let's share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sad, sad. May you be well. May the triple gem bless you. And may every time you take refuge not be those of the Kileshas. <laughs> and may it be always, not just once in a day, earlier in the day. See you next week.